Mm, friends, it's so good, so important that we've seen that together uh, as we get to ready here in a couple of minutes to enter into a very difficult, very weighty passage. Before we get to that point, we realize that a message like that is not something you hold within. It's not something you keep to yourself. It's definitely not something that's bottled up for one hour in this place on a Sunday morning. So we're always thinking about how do we get that out? One of the ways we do that is through our giving, that when we give together, not to the church, but as the church, when we give together, we're doing that in such a way that that good news that we sing about would get to people who have not heard that. A simple way we do that every year is through something like the Operation Christmas Child boxes. Um, And so we're coming to the time in the service that we're going to take up our offering Uh, So those of you that are on the ends of the pews and the pews, ha, man, we went back a few few years on that one. So uh, I know many of you would like the pews to come back, but they are gone (laughs) forever. You can give all the money you want toward a pew campaign and they're not coming back. So uh, we we do want to give, though, in order to get the gospel to the nations. We do want to do that. If you guys would take those uh, plates begin to pass them down the aisle. I want you to watch a fun video about the Operation Christmas Child boxes, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Let's pass those plates and uh, put that guest card in there, put your offering in there, and watch this fun video up here. It all goes great with a glass of milk. Packing an Operation Christmas Child jukebox. Okay, let's be honest. Packing an Operation Christmas Child jukebox can go great with anything. It's so that other kids can learn about Jesus. Praise the Lord. Oh, and it's also a great way to teach your own kids about giving. Teach your kids about giving. Have a great day. Oh, and don't forget, make good choices. So basically, you get an empty box, which any box will work. Really? Okay, not any box. Much better. Okay, so now you have your empty box. Now you can pick the age range, and if you want it to be for a boy or a girl. Well, looks like we're going to be packing for a boy this year. First, you can choose a wow item, such as a soccer ball or a stuffed animal. Mm. And you can choose other fun toys, too. Hygiene items and school supplies. There are, of course, some items you cannot pack, like liquids. Food, items related to war, live animals, and don't even think about packing chocolate because it melts. When your gift is finished, you can write a letter and include a photo. It gives it a nice personal touch. When your box is done, you can make your $7 shipping donation online through Follow Your Box. Simply print off your tracking label to see where the destination of your gift will be. And don't forget, it's important to pray for the child that is receiving this gift. Because packing a box is a simple way to share the gospel with kids all around the world. Maybe even in... in Africa. Now that your box is done, it's time to get moving. Transport your box to a nearby drop-off location near you. 
These will be opened all across the U.S. on National Collection Week, the third week in November. Drop it off and voila, you pack the shoebox. Easy as one, two, three. All right, so you have seen shoeboxes coming in this morning. Many of you have brought your shoeboxes this morning. If you did not know about this or you forgot to bring your shoebox, there's still time to do that. You heard about National Collection Week. Uh, our church is directly involved in that as one of the regional sites, which means we are desperately in need of volunteers for that week. Uh, we have a table set up, an area back here, as you exit this morning at the end of the service, where you can sign up. Um, if you forget this morning or it doesn't work out, follow up with the church office. We need your help. We have thousands of shoeboxes that come in that have to be packed into crates, loaded onto semis, shipped out. So it's a, it's a big endeavor. It's a great way, though, to serve um, and to be able to serve as a family or even if you only have a couple hours to give, that you'd be able to, uh, to do that. Now, this morning is first Sunday of the month, which means we don't have our Elevate Children's Church. So kids, we'll be in here uh, together. You guys do a great job listening. Parents, I say this every time, every week, but especially on this morning, if you need to go out in the lobby, if something happens and you just need to step out, it's no distraction to me. We want you to be able to do that. You'll have access out there to the sermon, so uh, know that you've got that option. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 this morning, so if you'd like to open your Bible to Joshua chapter 7, if you have a phone in front of you, but you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, the beauty of technology is you can access the Bible there on your phone. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7. Before we read this chapter, I want to give you a heads up about something, and this is particularly for our families uh, that I, with, with kids that I just talked to a second ago. We're going to do something different at the end of the service today. Uh, it, in fact, if the Lord gives me several decades here, I can't promise we'll ever do this again. It may go so badly, we never do it again. But uh, at the end of the service today, we're not going to have a time that we stand up and say, thanks for being here, have a great day, walk out. This is a really weighty passage, and I've gone back and forth on this several times even this morning about how we need to handle this and how we need to end the service. The service is going to end today in a time of introspection, in a time of confession, in a time of praying with the people around you. Many of you needing to come here to the front to pray or find a place on the side. David is going to be up here playing the piano. He's going to be singing over you. There are going to be people to pray with you. And you're going to be able to exit when you feel like the Lord says, it's time to leave now. It may be immediately. You just sit there, say a short prayer, and leave. That doesn't make you less spiritual. That just means it was time for you to leave. When your kids get wiggly, you're like, all right, it's time for us to walk out. Ladies, I know you have uh, your lunch together, and so you'll be able to make your way over that. Just know, though, this morning, at the end of the service, we are going to end by coming before the Lord in confession and repentance and prayer if you're a guest of ours, we want to be able to care for you through this time. You may be here and you're not a Christian and you say, well, that was a really weird end to the service. What you're seeing take place is us trying to take seriously the Bible, 
and us trying to take seriously God's work in our lives. And I pray that maybe it would prompt some questions. You'd be able to reach out to somebody and talk with them. So I just wanted to give you that heads up when we get to the end of the service, service because parents with kids, there's going to be a time that you're going to need to walk out. And we love you. We care for you. We want to be able to just come alongside you however we can during that time. All right. With that being said, here we go. Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their back before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more. This is exact reversal of chapter 1. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Verse 14. So in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. You're getting nervous at this point if you're a Zerahite. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua, in verse 19, said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. 
When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Achor means trouble. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Father, I pray that as we come this morning, as we think about this passage of Scripture, God, that our hearts would be soft, even as we come in with physical tiredness, as we come in with a lot of things on our minds. God, that you would give us focus, not just intellectually, but emotionally and spiritually, God, and that you would do a work in our hearts and in our church that only you would get the credit for. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we start to try to make sense of this chapter here, I want you to watch uh, kind of a funny YouTube video that is going to give us a framework to make sense of what's going on in this passage. So watch this really quick video. So they give the uh, contestant a head start, and then watch this guy get the freeze suit. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. He said a Braves baseball game. Watch this, folks. God has brought the people of Israel through the wilderness, across the Jordan River on dry ground, taking out the city of Jericho just by walking around it. What could possibly go wrong now to finish the race? God has created the people, and he's placed them in a perfect garden, and he walks with them in the evening, and he's provided everything that they could possibly need. What could possibly go wrong now? God has saved his people. He's forgiven their past. He's given them a new future. He's brought them together as the church. He set them free. What could possibly go wrong now to keep them from finishing the race? What you find here in chapter 7 is the people are ready to move in. They're ready to go into the promised land. They're ready to carry out what God has called them to do. And you know where the downfall comes from? It's not from an outside attack. It's not from a surprise army. Yeah, they're defeated when they go up to Ai, but the reason that they're defeated is the problem comes from within. The problem comes from their own camp from their own people. 
We live in a world where we're taught that all of our problems come from outside of us and the solution is found inside, psychologically, politically, sociologically. You can really take all of the world's religions, all of the ways that people approach spirituality in the world, and you can divide them into two groups. One group, the problem is outside me and the answer is inside me. Christianity says that the problem is inside me and the only answer has to come from outside me. I can't fix my problem. The problem is within. The solution has to come from outside. I want us to hear very clearly this morning that the thing that will stand in our way is not culture. Churches have such a terrible, Christians have such a terrible reputation of we blame the media and we blame the changing culture and we blame those people over there. It's not going to be what stops us. What stops us is the sin in our own camp, the sin in our own hearts, the sin in our own lives. And so this morning, as we approach this topic, as we think about what's happening here, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're going to talk a lot about sin. I know that may not be the most guest-friendly way to approach this, but I think if you're here, even as not a Christian, that's what you would expect. You would say, if, if they talk about this, they'd better take it seriously. Probably one of the things that keeps you away from Christianity anyway is the idea of hypocrisy. And so maybe this morning would give you a kind of a look into how Christians are trying to deal with that issue. If you're here this morning as a believer, uh, maybe, maybe you bring in a lot of just personal, emotional struggles right now. Uh, a morning like this can be really hard because we're going at those things that we struggle with and you're already hurting. You're already bringing in a lot of family problems. You're already bringing a, pray that God would guard your heart in that. And as we talk about sin this morning, as we talk about the danger of sin in our hearts and in our camp, uh, be careful that you define sin correctly. Uh, sometimes we have a bad habit of sin is whatever bothers me or sin is whatever, you know, doesn't fit with my culture or my personal tradition. When we talk about sin this morning, we're talking about things that are an affront to the glory of God, that when we talk about this, we're talking on the level of people in general, but we're also talking about how does this affect the people of God. Go back to verse 1. I want you to see the way this happens. What does sin look like in this situation? So it says, the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Now that's going to catch you off guard because we already read the whole story and we know whose fault was it. It was Achan's fault. He's the one that took things. He's the one that stole things. And yet chapter 7 says the people of Israel broke faith. There's going to be kind of two parts to how we start out the sermon. There's people in general thinking about how every person is responsible for sin. But then there's the reality of a corporate nature of sin. That in some way sin affects all of us even if it isn't you who maybe was directly responsible because we know that Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our kids are getting to the age where they're learning that sometimes you're in a group or you're on a team and one person does something wrong and everybody has to run as a result of that. Uh, that's one of the values of being in a team sports is you realize that sometimes you suffer because of the stupidity of the people around you on that team or in that group. That's one of those just natural realities that we see playing out here is, yes, one person may sin, but there's a lot of people that are going to suffer, and we're going to talk about that some more coming up. So it says in there, the people of Israel broke faith. 
The phrase broke faith is used consistently throughout the Old Testament in reference to idolatry. In other words, to breaking the covenant, the agreement that God had made with his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. Break faith is a phrase in the Old Testament that says the people have chosen idolatry. They've broken the covenant, they've gone their own direction. So he broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Now you could go, and kids, this might be something you could do as you're looking at your own Bible, but the phrase devoted things or things set for destruction, sometimes you'll see it spelled out C-H-E-R-E-M, the carom. This was a kind of a technical phrase that had to do with when Joshua and the people went and they took the city of Jericho, they were not supposed to take any of the spoils for themselves. Those things were devoted only to God. They were set apart for destruction. They weren't supposed to touch those things. And it says here, for Achan, in verse 1, took some of the devoted things. Very simply, he has stolen from God. Things that were set for God's purpose, that were for his glory, for his ownership, Achan has taken for his own. And in reality, that's the definition of sin. From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, what you find is sin means that something was set up for God's glory, for God's ownership, and we take and use it for our purposes or for our end goals. That's, that's the way it works out. What you find out in verses 2 through 9 are that when the spies go in, they go in with a lot of pride. The people never seek out the word of God. They're going at their own plans, going at this their own ways. And so sin here is a rebellion against God's plans. Look down in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, it says, O Lord, so this is Joshua responding to the sin. What can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear about this sin and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua understands that the people sinning will ultimately bring shame upon the name of God. His character, his reputation is on the line here. That this is an affront to his glory. It's an affront to his ownership. So what does God do in response? Go back to verse 1 in your phone or your Bible. What does God do? At the very end of verse 1, it says the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. I don't know what your understanding of God is or what your background is in regard to understanding God's attributes and character. One of the things that we talk about when we talk about who God is, one of the common ideas in theology is the simplicity of the character of God. Here's what's meant by that. When I get angry or lose my temper I don't have control over other things happening in my life usually at that point. We talk about being out of control. When scripture speaks of God being angry or God being wrathful, in his wrath and anger, he has not stopped being loving and merciful and kind and compassionate. He is perfect in all of his ways. So when I'm angry, I've usually at that point stopped being compassionate, kind, patient, all of those things. But God, when it says that he is angry, he is angry in such a way that he does not stop being perfect in his character. And it makes sense that God has anger towards sin. 
Sometimes you see these awful conceptions of God that he's just some distant grandfather sitting off somewhere, smiling, laughing when his people. God is angry about sin. And I think even if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're trying to explore this idea of Christianity, in fact, I think that'll make perfect sense to you. That God created a world in which his people would live for him, and when they choose not to live for him, what's he going to say? Ah, no big deal. Just laugh it off. Go on. No, God takes this seriously. And the reason he does is found, found in the idea, and this verse is actually printed out on the back of your bulletin. It's the idea that the wages of sin is death. The reason that God hates sin so much is because on one hand, it's an affront to his character. It's a rejection of his glory and his ownership. On the other hand, he knows that it's going to lead to death for his people. So sin causes anger in God for two reasons. One, it's an affront to his character, so we've dishonored him. And two, he loves his creation so much that he knows that if they follow that path of sin, it will always lead to death. And that's exactly what happens here for Achan. It's exactly what you see in James chapter 1 in the New Testament. I've got these verses on the screen, but this is kind of a, a summary of this idea. James chapter 1, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Then look at these verses from Romans as well. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Lest you say, well, that sounds really unfair. Look at Deuteronomy 24. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put de to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. That verse in Deuteronomy is particularly important for reading Joshua 7 here because you might be tempted to say, well, God's being so unfair there. No, the wages of sin is always death. And Scripture is crystal clear that everyone has sinned against God. So for people in general, don't, don't miss this. For every one of us in this room, it doesn't matter how religious you are, it doesn't matter about your background, we have all sinned and dishonored God. For every one of us, that sin leads to death. That's true individually, but what really sticks out from chapter 7 is how that's true for the people of God. So it's not just an individual thing, but it's a corporate thing. Our sin affects other people. Look in verse 11. I want you to see this in verse 11. So right after it talks about Joshua's response, in verse 11 it says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Then skip down to verse 19. You start to see this really clearly down in verse 19. So when Joshua confronts Achan about what has happened, he says, My son 
Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan in verse 20 says, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. This is what I did. Verse 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them. Here's an amazing thing about Joshua 7.21. It is almost an exact parallel of what happens to Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. So Joshua 7.21, he saw something, he looked at it, it was beautiful, it was good, he wanted it right then, and so he coveted it, and he took it. What happens to Eve in Genesis 3.6? The woman saw that the tree was good. The word good is the same word in Joshua 7 for the word beautiful. Just different, translated different words, but same exact Hebrew word. Saw that it was good. It was the delight for the eyes, and the tree was to be desired. That word desired there is the word for coveted. Desired to make one wise, so she took of its fruit, ate it, and she also gave some to her husband. What makes sin so dangerous to the people of God is because sin feeds on our short-term pleasures. We see something, it looks good, and so we covet it. We go after it. We say, I need that. I want that. I have to have that right now. In doing that, what you've done is you've turned your eyes away from the people around you. All you're concerned about that point is, I see it. I want it. I have to get it. This can show up in a number of ways. It can show up relationally. It can show up in terms of finances. It can show up in terms of power. We covet other people's lives. I see that. I don't want them to have it, but I want it, and so I covet it, and I go after it. All of this is at the core of what it means to be involved in sin, and it's what is threatening to derail the mission of God. But it gets worse than that. It's not only that he's seeking after this for himself. It's the fact that it's secretive. Look down in verse 21. At the end of 21, he says, See, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent, with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. Okay, I'm gonna tell you something that you already know to be true, but it's important to recognize. There is no such thing as secret sin. What you think is happening in private and only affects you will always come out and affect those around you. Maybe not directly, maybe indirectly in some way, but there is no such thing as secret sin. You're sitting in this room saying, you know what? Yeah, I do struggle with sin. Sure, who doesn't? But it's just, it's my problem. It's not affecting anybody else. It's not affecting my family. Yes, it is. Husbands, you're living with secret sin, and it will come out. Teenagers, you're living with secret sin, and it will come out. The lie about sin is that it would only affect you, that it would just stay inside, that it would never bubble up and cause any other problems, and it's a total lie. It always does. We're always talking about our, to our kids about the idea, tell the truth because the truth will set you free. When you get caught in those lies, when you try to continue to weave that web of lies, it will always come up. It will end up affecting other people. 
tell the truth because there's no such thing as just a secret sin. When we were at New Orleans Seminary uh, this last time doing PhD work, there was a professor there uh, who we'd gotten to know, respected greatly, just a really, really wonderful man, uh, helped out everyone with their car repairs on, on campus. After we'd moved over to Mississippi from New Orleans, we found out one morning that he had committed suicide. Everyone was just completely caught off guard by, by what had happened. And it turns out that for much of his life, he had lived under the weight of secret pornography. He had gotten caught up in the darkness of pornography. He got caught up in that Ashley Madison adultery scam that was going on for a while. And he lived under the weight of this secret sin as a professor at a seminary, caring for people around him. He was carrying around this weight of secret sin that ultimately resulted in suicide. And we know how that works. Some of you know personally what that works. Did that just affect him? No, not for a chance. The way his kids were affected, the way his spouse was affected, the way the whole seminary was affected by what happened. And Dr. Kelly, who was the uh, president of the seminary, still is uh, the president of the seminary, brought the whole student body together and all the faculty together and just sat us in the chapel and said, you cannot live under the weight of secret sin. There is healing in confession. The truth will set you free don't live in this way because the thing that we know from Aiken's story and the thing we know to be true is it always affects your family. It affects your biological family. Dads, your sin affects your kids. How do I know that? Because I have personal experience with it. To know that my sin will affect my wife, my sin will affect my kids, grandparents, the way you approach worship, the way you speak about the things of God, the way you live your life sets a model for your kids. And not only that, your sin, and don't miss me on this, your sin will affect your faith family. So let this sink in for just a second. Your sin and my sin, hidden in our camp, will affect every single person in this room. You say, I don't show up a whole lot. I'm really... No, no, if you are a part of this church, sin in the camp will impact the mission and the people of Emmaus. I'm just a kid. I'm just an elementary kid. I'm just a teenager. Your sin hidden in your camp will affect the mission and the people of the family of God. We are in this together. I bear that burden. I bear that weight as your pastor, but I bear it more as your friend, as someone who knows that sin in my camp doesn't just affect me, but it affects every one of you as well. What will not fix this problem? So you say, man, that's really weighty. What, what will not fix it? Well, back, back to verse 10 really fast. Verse 10, Joshua has just fallen on his face in worship and humiliation and prayer Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up, why have you fallen on your face? Then jump ahead to verse 13. He tells him again, get up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from you. 
This is an important point, especially for a church like Emmaus and some of us that have a little bit more of a church background than others. Just continuing to participate in a religious service is not going to take care of the sin in the camp. Joshua calls out to God in prayer. He falls before the Lord in worship. And God says, you know what? That's good that you did that. Now get up and take care of the problem. Go at the issue. Don't play around with the religious service thinking that is going to deal with the core of the problem. There's something deeper here that needs to be dealt with. And you you go ahead to verse 20, and this is really shocking. You go ahead to verse 20. When Achan is called on his sin, Achan answered Joshua, Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. Achan makes a ritual confession of his sin, but there's no sign of repentance. There's, yeah, I did that, but you never see any sign of deep repentance. Ritual worship and ritual confession will not deal with the problem that we're talking about this morning. The sin in the camp has to be dealt with in a different way. How so? On your notes, there are three things that have to happen. Three things that have to happen to deal with sin in the camp. Here's the first. The foundation of everything is the cross and the resurrection. The problem within us is not gonna be fixed by something within us. It had to come from outside. What's the answer? It's the cross of Jesus where he took up on himself the anger and the wrath of God, where he took up on himself our punishment, where he took up on himself our shame and our sin, And then the resurrection, so that the power of God that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that would eradicate the sin that is in our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Death, we already found out that sin leads to death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do Christians make a big deal out of the cross and the resurrection? Because it is our only hope, it's our only hope to deal with our deepest problem. The sin that is within us that we cannot take care of on our own has been taken care of through Jesus. Sin has been defeated through the cross. Death has been defeated through the resurrection. So once we have that foundation, that leads to the second point. Confession and repentance has to take place. Look at this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that will make sense of Achan's story a little bit for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a type of grief over your sin That's that grief that we talk about with kids. You're not really sorry. You're just sorry you got caught. You've probably said that to your kids or your grandkids sometime before. You're not really sorry. You're just sorry because of the punishment that came with getting caught. There are two different griefs that happen over sin. There's grieving. Well, I'm just sorry I got found out. That type of grief seems to be the type of grief that Achan had, and it always leads to death. But there's a godly grief There's a brokenness that happens in your life where you say, I must repent. I must turn to the Lord and find his healing, 
find his cleansing because only that will lead to salvation. And what's the result? No regret. You live in freedom. You live in hope. You don't live under that shame. So we trust in the cross and the resurrection. We confess and repent with a godly grief over the sin in our camp. And then third is cleansing and reconciliation. Look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 5. This is a tough one. 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting is not good. They're talking about boasting over sin in the church. Corinth had a lot of sin, and some of the people were even boasting. They were prideful about the sin in their camp. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, affects the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven? And then Paul goes on to say, I'm not talking about judging outsiders, people who aren't part of the church. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? As a church, we are called to care for one another in such a way that when we see sin happening, we go to that person and say, what you're doing right now is dividing the church, it's making a mockery of God, it's threatening the mission that God has called us to, and we cannot have that. You don't go to them in pride. You don't go to them forgetting about the own log that's in your own eye. You go to them because you have a relationship and you care, but you say, we have to have cleansing. Because if we keep this sin in our camp, we will never advance as the people of God. And so what God does in that time is he brings cleansing and he brings reconciliation. I can tell you about a time this happened in my own life where someone confronted me. And I just remember thinking, man, I'm so glad they came to talk to him. No. No, actually, that's what I wish I would have said. But uh, they came to confront me about something. You know what happens at that moment? Your blood pressure goes up. Your body temperature goes up. You become defensive. Who are you to tell me how I should live? Who are you? Mind your own business, that type of thing. No, God says we have to work cleansing and healing and reconciliation within the body of Christ, which means we won't allow sin to exist among us, not because we hate one another, but because we love one another. And because we love the gospel of Jesus Christ so much that we will not allow it to be mocked. And because that is our only hope to advance as a church, is when we turn and we embrace the cross, we believe in the resurrection, and we live with continual confession and repentance. God, make that so among us. Do that work within us. And so we're going to end this morning with a time of confession and with the time of prayer. As David comes up and he's going to play, he's going to sing over us, I want to help you make the most of this. Please, I would beg you, don't waste this response time. There's going to be a point that you're going to need to stand up and walk out. I realize those of you with young kids, that may be sooner than later. Do not hurry this time. Here's where you start. Have I ever experienced the power of the cross and the resurrection in my life? If you are living under shame, if you are living under past sin, if you think there's no way I'm good enough, now's your time to turn to the Lord and find salvation. Then, if you are a part of the people of God, now's the time to look deeply in your own heart. Are you hiding and holding on to sin? Are there short-term pleasures that are cutting the legs out of what God has called you to do? 
Are there secret sins in your life that you need to confess this morning? I'm not saying stand up and confess in front of everyone, but I'm saying you need to go someone that you trust this morning, and you need to confess with a godly grief that brings salvation without regret. Maybe there's something you're burdened by for our church. Maybe there's sin in the camp here between you and another person, and you need to deal with that this morning. We're going to have an open-ended close to our service. When I pray in just a moment, for all intents and purposes, we're dismissed. David's going to sing. He's going to play. This altar is open. You need to go find people here just to pray with. Parents and grandparents, pray over your kids, and then when you're ready, leave the building. Ladies, I know you're headed to your luncheon coming up. You'll be able to go out in the lobby, talk to one another, care for one another, go over and pick up your kids. Now is the time to confess and repent. Joshua 1, 8 through 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, thank you for passages like Joshua 7 that get our attention. Father, I pray that as a church, we would be deadly serious about sin in the camp because we know that sin leads to death. And until we're serious about that, God, we will never be the people you've called us to be. We'll never be able to fulfill the mission you've called us to. God, there are things we need to repent of. We need to confess corporately. We're a part of a church where, frankly, many times we are probably very lethargic, lackadaisical about faith. We come, we participate, we leave. There's no change. There's no depth to our worship. There's no intensity to our scripture reading and prayer. God, we are a lethargic people living in the middle of America in the heart of what's called the Bible Belt. And God, we confess that is not true of us so often. God, break us as a church. God, break us as a people. God, drive out the negativity that sets itself up in a church. Drive out the words of divisiveness and gossip. God, drive out the sin that sets itself up in the camp and seeks to destroy your people. God, let us be serious about that. Individually, dads in this room who have not taken seriously what it means to care for their family, they're greedy with their time, they're caught up in pornography, they're living for themselves. God, allow them to confess this morning and find repentance, to confess before their wives and their kids. Teenagers who think that they're not really part of the church, they're just along for the ride. God, that you would break their hearts to know that their sin impacts the people and the mission of this church. God, drive us to prayer this morning. Heal us as David begins here in just a moment to sing over us. And God, may we go from this place seeking to live fully for your glory 
and your glory alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name.